Tonight, we'll continue with the series of talks on the Satipatthana Sutta. Two weeks ago, we talked about the section dealing with clear comprehension and the contemplation of the asubha, or non-beautiful aspects of the body. The next instructions that the Buddha gives in the sutta for contemplating the body, mindfulness of the body, draws the mind down to a further level of subtlety and refinement. So this is the instruction. Again, monks, he reviews this same body, however it is placed, however disposed, as consisting of elements, thus, in this body there are the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the air element. So here the Buddha is using the ancient Indian (coughs) scheme of the four basic qualities (coughs) of matter. It's clear that our scientific understanding has progressed considerably since those days. But these elements still provide a useful framework for understanding our felt sense, our subjective experience of the body and the physical world. So we'll just explore a little bit how that is. (coughs) The earth element (coughs) refers to the experience we have of the solidity of things qualities of stiffness, of hardness, of softness. So when we touch something, we feel the hardness. That's the expression of the manifestation of earth element. Water element is the experience we have of fluidity and cohesion. And the example is given. The fluidity aspect is quite clear, I think. Cohesion... It's like when you add water to flour, you know, and all the particles of flour adhere together because of the adding of water. That is said to be the characteristic or the function of the water element. It makes things cohere. The fire element, heat, cold, temperature, and also lightness is an aspect of the fire element. And it functions, this particular element functions in quite a few different ways. It's the fire element that warms things. It's the fire element by which things age. You know, it's the maturation process or the ripening process of things is due to the fire element. The excessive heat that can burn something up is the fire element. And the last, which is mentioned, is digestive heat. In Burma, this is called stomach fire. And it's believed that when stomach fire is strong, then food gets digested easily. When stomach fire is weak, then there are digestive problems. So when I read this, I had a new understanding of the Burmese fondness for chili peppers. Because when you... You eat the chili pepper, it's burning. And one just wonders, why do people put this in the food? 
but the belief is, and it may well be true, that it increases the stomach fire. It aids in digestion. It is actually good for health. And so there's a whole different set of understandings around it. That's the fire element. The air element is what causes movement in the body. You know, it's the experience of extension or expanding or distending. It's the feeling of pressure. If you imagine, you know, blowing up a balloon, and as the balloon distends or expands and the pressure against it, which is causing that expansion. When we're attending to rising and falling of the abdomen, it's really the noticing of the air element. It's the air element causing the, the pressure that we feel, which results in the movement. The commentaries go into a lot of detail about how each of these elements manifest, how we experience them. I think for our purposes, it's not that we necessarily have to know what every sensation we feel, which element it is, and whether we actually get it right or not. It's enough to know that the different elements, and maybe in these broad categories of understanding, that the different sensations we feel are an expression of these elements at play. With different sensations, different of these four elements become predominant. So how do we bring this into our practice? I mean, this is an instruction the Buddha is giving in the sutta. He's saying, contemplate the body, however it's disposed, in terms of these four elements. One way, which is more on the conceptual level, but still helpful in transforming our understanding, is to see that the various parts of the body, which we mentioned in the previous section of the sutta, you know, the hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, skin, organs, bones. You know, we went through the whole list. We can see each of those parts of the body, it's physical matter, in terms of the predominant element. So things that are solid in the body is the earth element. You know, the bones, the organs, things that or the experience of movement in the body, what they call the winds, the air element. Fire element, obviously, is heat. And the water element is, in the body, all the aspects of fluidity, you know, the body fluids and blood. So understanding the body in this way and even the parts of the body in this way, it's comparable to looking or taking a very familiar object and putting it under a high-power microscope. Our conceptual notion of what that object is completely disappears because we're tuning in, we're keying in to a whole different level of perception, a different level of reality. So there's a way of turning the mind to seeing certainly the outer elements of the body, and maybe if we had 
good inner psychic vision, the internal aspects of the body, to go past the concept and into just the experience of these four elements. But more directly, and that might still be on the conceptual level, on the experiential level, we can see that the various sensations that we feel, however the body is disposed, is really just the play of the elements. For example, in the walking, when we walk and we're lifting, what do you feel when you lift? When you lift the foot, you might feel the sensation of lightness. It's lightness which is allowing the foot to lift the ground. If it were very heavy, you couldn't lift it. So there's some lightening which is taking place. That's the fire element. The pushing forward in the walking. You can feel the pressure, the movement. It's the air element. When you place the foot on the ground, you feel the hardness. That's the earth element. Beginning to contemplate our experience in these terms, effects a very important shift in our meditation practice. It effects a level shift. Because we go from the level of concept, that is concept of foot or leg, you know, or knee or back or body, to the level of the direct experience of pressure, heaviness, lightness, vibration, whatever the sensation may be. So this is a move away from the concept of body to the awareness of the body as a fluid energy field. When we are perceiving our experience through the filter of the concept, we live in the illusion of something solid, of something permanent, of something stable. When we drop down a level and are experiencing on the, on the elemental level of sensations, we see that there's nothing solid there at all. We begin to experience the body as a dynamic energy field. <clears throat> So how can we practice doing this? When we studied with Sayadaw Upandita, the way we would report to him was a very effective, skillful means for bringing the mind to that level. Because we would need to report both about the sitting and the walking on precisely what we felt in each part of the step, for example. So in the lifting, you know, I noted lifting, and I felt this, 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 and this. And the moving forward, I noted it was moving forward, and I felt I experienced this sensation, this sensation. Same as coming down and placing. It can be very demanding. You know, it really demands a close and careful attention, a feeling of it. 
I think I've mentioned in previous talks how for a long time, you know, in the moving forward, I knew I was moving, but I could not really identify what the sensations were that I was feeling in the movement. I knew the movement. But what actually was the sensation of it? It took a long time. It took like a week or more of dedicated investigation. I kept asking myself, well, I know I'm moving. How do I know I'm moving? There has to be some feedback that I'm getting. What is that sensation or or cluster of sensation? So it was a very effective way of drawing the mind down to a very fine level of attention. And then when I finally saw, oh, that's what it is. I got so excited. It was like this huge discovery. You can also understand the elements and the play of elements uh, in quite a remarkable way. Most of you probably know of Deepama, a teacher uh, from Calcutta, this amazing woman who just had profound, profound depth of experience, both in Vipassana and Samatha practice, jhana practice, you know, high levels of awakening, all the different kinds of psychic powers. So I just want to read something. I came across it today, just for the fun of it. Uh, because one of the one of the psychic abilities that comes through deep concentration is the ability to transform one of these four basic elements into another one. So I'll read some of the things that Deepama did. She demonstrated each of these powers to Manindra, you know, my first teacher who confirmed her mastery of them. And the following accounts are based on his recollections and the recollections of some of her students. Once Munindra was in his room when he noticed something unusual in the sky outside his window. He looked out and saw Deepama in the air near the top of the trees, grinning at him and playing in a room she had built in the sky. By changing the air element into the earth element, she had been able to create a structure in mid-air. Changing denser elements to air produced only slightly less astonishing occurrences. Sometimes Deepama and her sister, who also had these powers, arrived for interviews with Munindra by spontaneously appearing in his room. And Deepama occasionally left by walking through the closed door. If she was feeling especially playful, she might rise from her chair, go to the nearest wall, and walk right through it. It goes on and on. If she had to walk alone at night, Deepama could duplicate her body, creating a companion for herself so that no one would bother her. Now, we might not have quite this level of mastery of the elements, and it's not really necessary in terms of enlightenment 
or even wisdom. But I tell the stories both just to, to show the powers of mind that are there, uh, but more importantly, to illuminate the fact that these elements are very dynamic. The world is not as static and as fixed as it might appear to our ordinary perception. And so with a highly developed mind, there's a lot of remarkable transformations and experiences that can happen in terms of these basic elements of experience. But for us, in our more ordinary practice with them, and really in our practice that leads not so much to the powers, but to the wisdom that frees the mind, when we free ourselves through this contemplation of the elements, when we free ourselves from, the concept, from attachment to the concept of the body, then the mind is less prone to cling to it, to be, to be identified with it, and all the desire and the aversion and the conceit that springs from that attachment. I'll just share with you one other little story of my time with Sayadaw in Burma. At one time, I, was, I had been sitting there for some time and my practice was going well and my body was very open and it was like this just fluid energy field and everything was flowing except for one knot in my neck. You know, it just... It was, it was just that kind of very strong predominant knot or block. So I went in and I reported to him that everything was really open, but there was this energy block you know, that was very unpleasant. And he really got on my case a bit for calling it a block. Because just in that interpretation, right within that word, there was desire and aversion, which I didn't know. I thought I was just giving an objective report on my experience. Block. No good. Need to open. You know, and so wanted to get rid of that. You know, wanted it in some other way. And so he was reminding me to again see it just in terms of the elements. What I was calling block was really the experience of tightness and pulsing. That's what the experience was. It wasn't a block. And it was amazing just in reframing it more correctly, more fundamentally, I could feel my mind relax around it. I had been involved in a struggle with it in ways that I hadn't even realized just by holding it uh, with, a, with a concept that contained within it the desire and aversion. Several times over the last weeks, we've also talked about the mental factor of conceit. The very deeply rooted sense, I am, the I amness, or I was, or I will be. That's the Buddhist meaning of conceit. 
And this is one of the last defilements to be uprooted. Now it's one of the final veils of ignorance before full awakening. So it's a defilement or a kalesa that is worth looking into because it's so deeply rooted in our minds. The contemplation of the elements is a very powerful remedy for this particular defilement. Notice how many times in the day this sense of I am arises in relation to our bodies. And then the comparisons in one way or another with the bodies of others. And we can notice how many different thoughts arise and how, how many different emotional patterns are triggered through these comparisons. How many projections we get lost in. But really, it's the underpinning of much of our consumer culture. If we buy this product, we'll either be like or feel like or look like this perfect human being that's advertising it. And that's the lure. But what's so amazing, it's such an obvious ruse. There's no way I'll ever look like that. (laughs) But it's touching something very deep because it seems to work on some level. Right? Our psyches respond. And it has to do with this particular kalesa, the kalesa of conceit, the I amness, especially with respect to the body, and then the comparison. When we see the body both as a collection of parts, which was one of the previous contemplations, And when we do that, we see that none of the parts in themselves are particularly alluring. But then even further to see it, to see the body as just the manifestation or the play, the interplay of these basic elements of matter. In those moments of mindfulness, in those moments of wise attention, when we're contemplating the body in this way, the conceit of I am falls away. Feelings of pride or of unworthiness with respect to the body in those moments really don't make any sense. There's a monk named Bhikkhu Nanananda and he spoke to this issue when he referred to the conceit of taking the elements to be self. He said, It's the misappropriation of public property. It's just the impersonal elements. And the the reason I like Deepama's stories, even though they're, they're such remarkable things, but it just points again to the fact that these elements are not personal. They're they're ultimately transmutable.
This is from the Middle End Sayings. There comes a time when the waters in the great oceans are not enough to wet even the joint of a finger. When even this external water element, great as it is, is seen to be impermanent, subject to destruction, disappearance, and change, what of this body, which is clung to by craving and lasts but a while, there can be no considering that as I or mine or I am. And the Buddha gives similar examples for each of the other elements. You know, in this great, huge cycle of samsara, where even the great oceans dry up, the, the external water element, what is it that we're clinging to or identifying with, with these elements in our own bodies? It's a powerful reminder to us when we reflect on this of the inherent instability of these elements. What does this mean for what we rely on in our lives? Are we relying on them being a certain way? Are we relying on them on staying in balance? What does it mean for where we take refuge in the world? Contemplating the elements leads to a radically different vision where we go beyond even the concept of being. So in the second part of this section of the sutta, the Buddha uses quite a graphic image to help effect this change of perception where we go beyond the concept of being. So he starts with you know, reviewing <clears throat> the body, however it's placed or disposed in terms of the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. And then he says, just as though a skilled butcher or his apprentice, apprentice had killed a cow and was seated at a crossroads with it cut up into pieces, so too, he reviews this same body, however it is placed, however disposed, as consisting of elements. Thus, in this body there is the earth element, water element, fire element, and the air element. So when I first read this, yeah, it's, I think, a little easy for our sensibilities to be offended a bit by this image of butchering cows, you know, and cutting it up. It, doesn't seem very Buddhist, you know, given all the emphasis on non-harming and compassion. But the Buddha really was just using the very ordinary experiences of daily life in those times to point to some very profound Dharma truths. He was taking the experiences at hand. You know, and even today in India, all the cycles of birth and life and death, it's all out in the streets. It's not covered, it's not hidden, it's not prettified. It's like, okay, this is it. This is, this is life, this is death. And it's seen very 
uh, vividly. So why does the Buddha use this particular example? While the cow is still whole, whether it's alive or whether it's dead, we would still refer to it as a cow. In its wholeness, we still apply that concept, cow. But once it's cut up into pieces to sell as meat, at that point, the notion of cow is no longer there. You, know, you go to buy some hamburger, you don't say, can I please have some cow? It's not how we see it, it's not how we view it, it's not how we understand it at that point. So this simile the Buddha's using, and again, I think he used it because it must have been a common sight you know, in the, in the village bazaars of India. The Buddha's using this as an example of what happens when we experience the body as just the elements. It's as if we're carving up the body in terms of the four elements. We begin to lose the concept of body. We lose the concept of being or a person. You might have this experience very easily And it's kind of an interesting thing to do as an exercise. Sometimes when I'm walking, I'll just be walking and without even particularly directing the mind to the feet or to the leg, but just the experience of the whole body moving through space and dropping down into the experience of what I'm actually feeling in that moment its body disappears. It's just sensations in space being known. That's all that's happening. And it's it's a little odd, (laughs) but very revealing of how much of our lives we are caught or we're imprisoned by the concept we have of the body rather than a direct felt sense of the elements. It was very helpful in terms of loosening our attachment. This has really enormous consequences for our understanding and how we live our lives. This is from the Path of Purification. The monk who is devoted to the defining or the contemplation of the four elements immerses himself in voidness and eliminates the perception of living beings. Because he has abolished the perception of living beings, he conquers fear and dread and conquers delight and aversion. He is not exhilarated or depressed by agreeable or disagreeable things. And as one of great understanding, he either ends in the deathless realm or is bound for a happy destiny. Contemplation of the four elements, we immerse ourselves in voidness and eliminate the perception of living beings. Well, that's, that's pretty radical. 
in terms of a transformation of our understanding of ourselves and the world. Through this contemplation of the elements, we open the door to an understanding of two overarching principles that really frame the 25, 2600 years of Buddhist wisdom. And these are the principles of relative and ultimate truth. So relative truth is the conventional world we live in. The world of concept, the world of subject and object, of self and other, of birth and death. All the familiar experiences of our lives are contained within this domain of relative truth. Ultimate truth sees the world quite differently. On the level or domain of ultimate truth, there is no subject-object separation. In fact, there are no things at all. And the very deepest aspect of ultimate truth, we could call the unmanifest, or the unborn, the undying, all the words the Buddha used to describe Nibbana. So one way of understanding how these two truths relate to one another, because we are living the unity of them. Just think for a moment of being in a movie theater, completely engrossed in the story. It's a good movie, and it has our attention, and we're completely engrossed in it. And we may feel happy, we may feel excited, we may feel terrified, whatever, depending on the particular story, the movie being shown. Okay, so we're sitting there, completely engrossed, feeling all of these things. And then maybe something moves us to just glance upwards, and we see the light, you know, which is being projected through the film, creating all the images on the screen. And we realize in that moment that nothing is really happening on the screen at all. There's no one being born, there's no one falling in love, there's no one getting chased, there's no one getting killed. Really all that's happening, it's just a play of light and color. Yet when we're absorbed in the story, it feels so very real. It's sort of like a dream state. And when we're in the dream, it feels like such a basic reality. And yet when we wake up, we see all of that was not happening. We can take it even further. What happens to our experience of even the light and the color, even if we've gone beyond the relative level of story, what happens to our experience of the light and the color if there's no screen or there aren't even particles of dust for the light to land on? What's our experience of light then? 
we can get a sense of the unmanifest. It's not manifesting because there's no place to land. So on the relative level in our lives, we live and we act and we relate as individuals, as one individual to another, and this is a big part of our lives. With all our personal stories and our personal histories, And on the ultimate level of understanding, we see that there's no self, there's no I, there's no one there at all. That it's all a play of momentary changing elements. That's all that's going on. And we create out of that the drama of our lives. In the Sutta Nipata, which is one of the oldest collections of the Buddhist teachings. You know, as they dated, uh, scholars dated historically, this is considered to be one of the oldest. The Buddha, again, as he does many, many times in the suttas, he points out very directly, he gives us the instructions for practicing freedom. He said, dry out that which is past. Let there be nothing for you in the future. If you do not grasp at anything in the present, you will go about at peace. One who, in regard to this entire mind-body complex, has no cherishing of it as mine, and who does not grieve for what is non-existent, truly suffers no loss in the world. For him there is no thought of anything as this is mine or this is another's, not finding any state of ownership and realizing nothing is mine, he does not grieve. The one line in that that jumped out at me when I read it Don't grieve for what is non-existent. That's like a wake-up call. (laughs) What are we doing? (laughs) It is really like a dream. You know, and even... Even intense... In intense situations, they may be intense on the relative level. But if we can touch even briefly or even for a few moments just to open us to the possibility of an understanding on the ultimate level that takes us beyond the concept of being, of self, then we don't grieve for what is non-existent. And the mind is at peace. And one of the best examples of this, and this is a story I tell very often because it's so remarkable, you know, is of the death of the 16th Karmapa, the head of one of the Tibetan lineages, who died some time ago, 17, 18 years ago, now there's the 17th Karmapa. You know, but anyway, when the 16th was dying, his body was riddled with cancer, and you know, he was in a hospital outside of Chicago in Zion, Illinois. 
his disciples were all around him, and you know they were very upset here. You know that this great master and beloved teacher was dying, and you know the body was in such a terrible state. And they were grieving the fact that he was dying. And at one point, it said he turned to them, turned to all these grieving disciples, and said, "Don't worry, nothing happens." Well, that's a remarkable understanding. You know, that here's this body doing all of this stuff. But from his perspective, from the perspective of the ultimate level, nothing is happening. It's like the movie on the screen. So our practice, you know, we we do it very slowly and gradually and modestly, but we begin to touch, we begin to experience this level. Of course, this is the tremendously liberating aspect of Dharma practice. But there's also a certain caution here, which I think is important to point out. Because it's possible, and this happens in different spiritual scenes and you know, with us at different times, it's possible to become attached to this ultimate perspective before we are truly and fully free. You know, we get caught in the perspective, oh, it's all empty, nothing matters. And we lose our connection with what the ancient Taoists call the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And some great masters have pointed out the danger of this. This is from Nagarjuna. He said, it's sad to see those who mistakenly believe in material, concrete reality. But far more pitiful are those who believe in emptiness. Those who believe in things can be helped through various kinds of practice and skillful means. But those who fall into the abyss of emptiness find it almost impossible to re-emerge since there seem to be no handholds, no steps, no gradual progression, nothing to do. So that's a very important reminder to us that even as we contemplate the elements in order to experience the emptiness of it all, we don't want to become attached to that perspective because then we lose the fullness of understanding that the relative and the ultimate are a whole, they're unified, they're not two different things. A mature spiritual practice sees the union of these two levels. We're not so caught in the relative that we take it to be a concrete reality and lost in self and lost in our dramas and lost in the story. 
and we also don't get attached to the ultimate level where we're ignoring the truth of our relative existence. And we can see how this works pretty clearly, the, the interplay of these two levels in our practice of the Brahma-viharas, of metta, compassion, you know, sympathetic joy and equanimity. Because the Brahma-viharas are all based on the level of concept. Right? It's the concept of being. May I be happy, may you be happy, may all beings be happy. We're not saying may the earth element be happy and may the water element be happy. We are addressing the level of being. So that's the conceptual relative level. Yet the deeper our understanding of selflessness, of emptiness, the freer the love and compassion flow. There is a relationship between these two. On the relative level, love and compassion and joy, these are states that we cultivate. You know, and many of you have done these practices. We use the conceptual relative level and we, we cultivate these mind states. But on the ultimate level, we see that love and compassion really are the responsive nature of the mind itself. Kensi Rinpoche, one of the great Tibetan masters, he expressed it so beautifully. He said, when you recognize the empty nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. So we just see how the two levels are expressions of each other. They inform each other, and we want to hold them both in unity. This understanding of the union of the relative and ultimate levels gives rise to the very rare flower of bodhicitta, the awakened heart. which in its simplest expression we could understand as that motivation that our practice and our lives be not for ourselves alone, but for the welfare and benefit of all beings. This is both an incredibly noble and profound aspiration. This is big. To dedicate our lives to the welfare and benefit of all. So it's important that we start small, that we really undertake this with humility, that we don't kind of idealize it You know, that we undertake it without pretension, without grandiose expectations of ourselves. We just plant a seed. It's like we plant this very small seed within ourselves, this aspiration. 
understanding both the relative and ultimate levels. May my life, may my practice be for the welfare, the benefit, the happiness, the awakening of all beings. A very small seed. Thoreau had some wonderful words about planting seeds. He said, though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there and I am prepared to expect wonders. You know, and that's such a, a beautiful acknowledgement of the power of a seed. So we plant, we plant the seed of the flower of bodhicitta. We plant the seed of this aspiration within ourselves. Because it's bodhicitta which unites the relative and ultimate levels. Relative bodhicitta is compassion. Ultimate bodhicitta is emptiness. As one of the great Tibetan masters said, when compassion and emptiness are both present, enlightenment is unavoidable. This is our practice. I'd just like to close with a reminder from Ajahn Mahabhuva, who was one of the great Thai forest masters, like the father of the Thai forest tradition. Not from Mahabhuva, from the biography of Ajahn Man. Uh, who was Ajahn Mahabhu's teacher. Of all the many things that people value and care for in the world, the mind is the most precious. In fact, the mind is the foremost treasure in the whole world so be sure to look after it well. To realize the mind's true nature is to realize Dhamma. Understanding the mind is the same as understanding Dhamma. Once the mind is known, then Dhamma in its entirety is known. Arriving at the truth about one's mind is the attainment of Nibbana. The mind is a priceless possession that should never be overlooked. Let's sit for a few minutes.
just like to say what a delight it's been these last three months. Just each time walking over here, it's sort of like a Dhamma Deva world. You know, and it's just, it's so wonderful. And it's been great to have the opportunity to go through the Satipatthana Sutta in this way. Uh, we'll pick it up next March <laughs> and, and, and continue our march through it. Uh, so, thank you. Thank you for all your great efforts. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the
This talk was given by Joseph Goldstein at Forest Refuge on June 29, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.